0: Hello and welcome again to this series of studies studying the prophet Samuel from the book of 1 Samuel, which is in the Bible. Chapter 1 told us about his babyhood and his mother, Hannah. Chapter 2 told us how she, Hannah, used to make a new robe for him every year and take it up to Shiloh for him to wear. Chapter 3 told us how while he was at Shiloh, uh, sleeping in the tabernacle, he was called by the Lord to be a prophet And then we read in chapter 7 of Samuel's middle years. It said in chapter 7, verse 2, the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim a long time, 20 years in all. And then chapter 7 described how Samuel was ministering to the people during those years. But at the end of that chapter, we read that Samuel continued as Israel's leader all the days of his life. From year to year, he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, judging Israel in all those days places. So he was reducing the compass of his work. He wasn't able to go from north to south anymore. He was getting older and therefore he was going on circuit within the radius of where he lived. But he was judging. The people were repentant. Idols had been put put away. The Philistines were quiet. What could possibly go wrong? What went wrong was simply that the elders of Israel got fed up with him as he got older. Let's read chapter eight verses one to five. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders or judges. The name of his firstborn was Joel and the name of his second was Abijah and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us or judge us such as all the other nations have. Chapter 7 has showed us all the positives of Samuel's ministry. The getting rid of the idols the repentance, the Philistines routed, the Amorites at peace. But chapter 8 tells us some negatives. He was getting older, and as he got older, he promoted his sons to be judges. Now, they would be priests anyway, because that came by inheritance, but judgeship, lordship, governorship, being leader of the country, no, that didn't come by inheritance. You had to be chosen by the Lord. And Samuel appointed his sons who had not turned out very well at all. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. Just as Eli's sons had become worldly, Samuel's sons in turn had become worldly. And the elders are united. Now having united elders is usually a good thing, but in this case they were united that they needed to get rid of this old man you're finished they said we don't want your sons to lead us give us a king and we'll be happy let us be like the nations around us and then we'll be content we don't want you to be our king that must remind us of the words of jesus in one of his parables where a nobleman had gone away to another country to look, to inherit a kingship and would return And his own people said of him, we don't want this man to be our king. That's what they were saying. That's what the elders were saying about Samuel. We don't want this man anymore or his children. The outward excuse was, your family has failed and your sons are no good. The underlying reason was, we want to be like everyone else. All the nations around us have a king. We want a monarchy too. And surely we must remember Romans chapter 12, as translated by J.B. Phillips, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mould. They were saying, we want to be Yahweh's, but we also want to be like the nations all around us. And it couldn't be. In verses 6 to 9, the Lord said, yes, okay, but... When they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly, And let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. Samuel felt sorry for himself. It says this displeased Samuel. He he had a a moment of of personal pity, feeling sorry for himself. It was a personal slight, but it was personal for God too. Verse 7, it is not you they have rejected. They have rejected me as their king. They're doing what they've always done, forsaking me and serving other gods. Listen to them, but Samuel warned them. And in verses 10 to 18, he warns them about what a monarch will be like. In verse 11 and 12, the monarch will want an army. The army will need equipment, horses, men, officers and chariots. He'll need farmers because he will need to maintain a court He will need cooks, he will need bakers to prepare his food. In verse 14, he'll take the best fields and the best vineyards and the best olive groves to get the best food for his court. Verse 15, he'll impose taxation on them at 10%. They already gave 10% in their tithe to the Lord. Now the king will impose upon you another 10%. You'll be paying 20% of your income one way or another. Some of you, he'll even force into servitude or into slavery, verse 17. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. These are the people who come out of Egypt. Now, bad kings will re-enslave the people. Verse 18, they will regret having a king and the Lord will not answer them. So, they're going to experience taxation for civil purposes they had never known, conscription for a standing army they'd never known, slavery for a national leader they'd never known. Now some of those were legitimate demands of a central government. But as it says in verse 14, he will take the best. What they were about to get was a one man monarchy, a central government, a standing army, Crippling taxation and forced labour. Be careful what you wish for, you elders. In verse 19, he listened to them and gave them some advice. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we shall be like all the other nations, with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, He repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, everyone, go back to your own home. Samuel had his instructions, but who would it be? How would he find the right man? Extraordinarily, he found the right man to be king with the help of some lost donkeys. Let me tell you the story of chapter 9. There was a well-respected man in the tribe of Benjamin called Kish. He had a very handsome son. He was tall and he was good-looking. He was head and shoulders above everybody else in Israel. And Kish's donkeys had gone astray. And he sent his son Saul and some servants off to locate these lost donkeys. And they searched north, south, east and west without any success. In verse 5, they came to Zuf, which you may remember as being the town that Elkanah came from in chapter 1, verse 1. And Saul was on the point of giving up. We'll never find these donkeys. We might as well go home. But one servant in verse 6 knew of a man of God nearby. Chapter 9, verse 6. The servant replied, look, in this town there is a man of God. He is highly respected and everything he says comes true. Let's go there now. Perhaps he will tell us what way to take to find these donkeys. And Saul so in verse 7 thought, well, yeah, that's all very well, but he'll want paying, we, as in we've got any money. And one servant said, I've got a quarter of a shekel of silver here, just enough, three grams of silver, that would be just enough to grease his palm to give us a favourable, helpful prophecy as to where these donkeys are. Now verse 9 is of particular interest because of what it says about men of God. Formerly in Israel, if somebody went to inquire of God, they would say, come. Let us go to the seer, because the prophet of today used to be called a seer. So at this time in Israel's history, we have three words for the same function. A man of God, a seer, a prophet, are all the same person. And in this case, of course, they are Samuel. In verse 10 and 11, they set off to find this seer. Who will be able to tell us, tell them where the donkeys were. They set off up the hill and on the way they bent, bumped into some, some young women at a well. You can imagine the confusion of these young girls. This man, he's tall, he's handsome, he's the most attractive man in Israel and you can imagine them squabbling among themselves. Oh I'm too shy to talk to him, you talk to him. You know where the Syrian, you know where Sam lives. You you have a word with them. They got all flustered in the presence of Saul. But eventually they said, well, there is is a, a prophet here, a seer, and he's about to go to sacrifice and then a meal. You better make off after him. So they found him. Verse 10. Good, Saul said to the servant, come, let's go. So they set out for the town where the man of God was. As they were going up the hill to the town, they met some young women coming out to draw water. And they asked them, is the seer here? He is, they answered. He's ahead of you, hurry now. He has just come to our town today for the people have a sacrifice at the high place. So they hurry off to, to try to find Samuel and then paths cross. As Samuel is going towards the place of his sacrifice, the Saul and his servants meet Samuel. And now, Samuel, the day before, had been told by God in a word of knowledge that tomorrow, today, you, Samuel, will meet the man who you are going to anoint to be the next ruler or the ruler of Israel. Now, up until this point in their history, nobody had ever been anointed other than priests. Yes, priests were anointed, but not judges. Now, there's going to be an, an anointed leader an anointed king now in verse 17 samuel saw saul before saul saw samuel and god said in samuel's mind this is the man he will govern my people and saul asked samuel excuse me sir where can i find the seer now i'd like to know the intonation the tone of voice in verse 19 when samuel said something like it's me slow coach, I'm a bit dim, I'm the prophet. Today, you and I are going to eat together and tomorrow, I'm going to tell you a secret. And by the way, your donkeys are okay. Look at chapter 20, verse 20, the second half of the verse. And to whom is all the desire of Israel turned, if not to you and your whole family line? That's a very pregnant sentence, isn't it? The desire of Israel the want of the nation is you. They all want you and your family line. They want you and your children to rule over them for the foreseeable future. Saul protested. He, he sounds overwhelmed. He sounds a bit scared by the prospect of all this. He, he says, not me, Benjamin, I, I'm a Benjaminite. My." tribe is the smallest clan and it's the lowest in the pecking order. Now, there's a reason for that. If you read those ghastly chapters in Judges chapter 19 and 20, where a visitor came into the area of Benjamin uh, with his concubine and the Benjaminites started knocking on the door. We want to have sex with these people. And in the end, the concubine was put outside the door and they multiply raped her and, and they killed her and word went around Israel, such dreadful things going on in Benjamin. We've got to deal with this and it united the, the nation just for, for a change and they all decided to deal with the Benjaminites and the other tribes fell upon the Benjamin tribe and we read that 25,000 Benjaminites were killed this all happened almost certainly within the living memory of what is happening here. So Saul is saying, look, my my clan's the the smallest, it's also the most despised. Why me? Why choose me to be the anointed king? But isn't this what Hannah had prayed in chapter 2? God raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and makes them inherit a throne of honour. Isn't this what she'd said in her prophecy in that prayer? Here is God choosing a donkey shepherd to be his king. They have the meal. Saul and the servant are put at the head of the table as the honoured guests, and they dine together, and Saul is given the best cuts of the meat. And the next day, Samuel tells Saul to be on his way, but... I'm going to meet you and we'll get rid of your servant. I've got something personal to tell you. There's something I want them to do in private. So if we look at the end of verse of chapter 9, as they were going down to the edge of the town, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to go on ahead of us, and the servant did so. But you stay here for a while, so that I may give you a message from God. Then Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it out on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? Samuel, you just got... Sorry, servant, you go ahead of us. Samuel wants to talk to me in private. And there in private, Saul anointed. Samuel anointed Saul. Now, what can we get out of these two chapters? Chapter 8 Be careful what you wish for. Sometimes God will allow a second best in order to teach us that doing God's will is really best. Think of the dishonesty and the greed of Judas Iscariot. If it weren't for his evil, there would have been no crucifixion, no atonement, no salvation. It was a second best, but it led to something wonderful. In the salvation of all those who believe. Think of another example, think in the Acts of the Apostles where Paul and Barnabas were g- about to go on a second missionary journey and Barnabas wanted to take John Mark with them and Paul said no way, he was with us on our first journey, he let us down, he went back home and Barnabas says no I want him. Two apostle apostolic missionaries arguing with one another, can you believe it? But it led to two teams. So Paul and Silas went off in one direction, Barnabas and Mark went off in another direction. So out of something second best came something much better. Think of the prayer you often pray in the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done as in heaven, so on earth. And we think of this as being, oh, should I get married to this person? Should I change my job? Should I buy that house? What about a new car? Well, what's the Lord's will? It's not really what it's all about at all. The point is that in heaven, God's will is done promptly, enthusiastically and completely. So when we pray, thy will be done as in heaven, so on earth, we're praying that in our lives and down here on earth, God's will will be done promptly enthusiastically and completely. And if you're anything like me, when I know God's will, I do it slowly and rather uh, grudgingly and rather incompletely. But God will turn what is second best into something much better. We can also note that sometimes the will of God is standing there in front of us. When Saul met Samuel, he didn't recognise him. He didn't know who he was. And Samuel had to say, silly boy, I'm the the seer, I'm the prophet you're looking for. The will of God was there, right in his face. He didn't spot it. And how often do we know exactly what God wants us to do in our lives and we defy his will? We can also see from this that the love of money can ruin your ministry for God. Samuel's sons were ruined by their love of money. Paul said, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. When I say ministry for God, I don't mean platform ministry. I don't mean being called to do something exceptional. I mean you as a a general Christian, you have a ministry for the Lord. There's something which only you can do for Jesus Christ. Don't let that be spoilt by the love of money. And don't let the desire to be like everybody else, squeeze you into the world's mould. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mould, Romans chapter 12 says. We like to be like everybody else. We look around us and we find we're we a little bit different because we've got Christ in our lives and we get a little bit embarrassed and we, we start to compromise with the world. We should be different because Christ in us, He is our Lord and Saviour. And then there's the story of the lost donkeys. God used something insignificant to achieve his will. As Hannah had prayed, he raises the poor from the dust. He seats them with princes and makes them inherit a throne of honour. God chose a donkey herder to be the first king. He chose a shepherd boy to be the second king. He chose a carpenter boy to be the king of kings. God takes insignificant people and raises them up and uses them. And the providence of God often uses second causes. God didn't send Samuel to Saul directly. He sent Saul to Samuel indirectly because of some lost donkeys. Let me tell you a story about God's providence. Probably the greatest preacher in the English language in the 19th century was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. When he was only 17, he was called by the Baptist Church in Waterbeach in Essex to be their pastor. And soon, such was his power and his eloquence that the church was full, overflowing. They couldn't cope with the numbers coming. And word got to the senior Baptist ministers that this young lad, 17 years old, was having great success. And they thought, well, we better take him to one of our Bible colleges, Baptist colleges, and get him trained for the ministry. So an appointment was made in Cambridge. And Spurgeon had to go to this house which had double fronted bay windows. Front door in the middle, bay windows either side. He knocked on the door and the maid came to the door. He said, I'm Charles Spurgeon. The maid put him into one of those bay window rooms. She didn't know that in the other room was the senior Baptist minister who had come to interview him. And they never did meet because the maid didn't introduce the one to the other. And eventually the senior Baptist minister said, well, I've got to go now, um, we'll have to make some other arrangement. And Spurgeon never did go to Bible college. He was called to be the pastor of the Baptist church in New Park Street in London. Soon it was far too small for the crowds attending. They had to build a massive new church called the Metropolitan Tabernacle and for about 40 years Spurgeon preached to congregations of 5,000 in the morning and 5,000 in the evening nearly every Sunday. God's providence. God overrules things. God used insignificant donkeys. God used an insignificant maid to achieve his will and God will in that sort of way achieve his will through your life as well. If God can use donkeys, God can use me. If God can use donkeys, God can use you. It says in Ephesians chapter one, God works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. So be careful what you wish for. Set aside your own wishes and say, thy will be done. Let God's will in heaven like that be done in me. Promptly, enthusiastically, completely. And let me recognise that God can use insignificant events and insignificant people. God can even use you, because there's a work for Jesus only you can do. Find out what it is and do your work under the providential guidance and grace of God. May the Lord bless us all in these matters. Amen.